0: Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when the disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked. Not one stone here, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on one another. They will all be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They said, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. For such things must happen, but the end will still come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdoms. The end, there will be famines and earthquakes in, all, in various places. These are just the beginnings of the child pains. And here's the good news. Then you will be given, handed over to be persecuted and put to death. All nations will hate you because of me. Many will turn away from the faith, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will be lost, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, to the testimony of all the nations, and then the end will come. Amen?
1: Amen. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Cole Fakes. I'm the pastor here, as Kerwin said, one of the elders here. And uh, yeah, we've come to the end of the world, so kind of. If you're new here this morning, if you're a visitor with us this morning, thinking to yourself, oh man, this is one of those churches. Here we go. We're not in week 30 of our End time series. We actually are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've arrived at this passage on this week. And so I just want to, before we get going into this passage, I just want to step back for a minute and just say something about uh, why we're doing what we're doing. Which is, we're, we started in January, and we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We're not doing every single word, but we're doing every passage basically every section of Matthew because we really want to get the whole sweep and context of what God is saying to us through his word not not just plucking things out like little pearls here and there we want to get the full sweep of what God is saying and so one of the benefits of just preaching through books of the bible is that God basically determines what you're going to talk about and the great thing about it is if you get the whole bible you need that to make a whole christian whole bibles for whole Christians And so we're just committed to preaching what comes next and um, having God lead us through those passages. Now the second thing is, isn't it amazing when it works out that after the last couple of weeks we've had, this is the passage that's queued up for us this morning? We d- I decided this in January, and here we are. I guess there was probably a decent chance something would happen in the Middle East sometime during our Matthew series. But here we are. And uh, so we're taking this passage about the end of the world. But as I want you to see this morning, it's actually only kind of about the end of the world. Jesus is talking to his disciples in response to a question, and the question is, when will all these things take place? Now in the immediate context, and this is one of the great things about coming up from where we have been in Matthew, the immediate context is not the end of the world. The immediate context is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem which would happen in about 35 years time in the year 70 AD. And the greater, broader context is when will the judgment of all things occur at the end of the age? Now, this passage could hardly be more relevant, not just this week, but in general, because doomsday prepping And end times speculation is maybe the largest cottage industry in evangelicalism. I mean, there is constant prediction about the end of the world, constant talk about whether or not we're in the end times. And the good thing for us is this is not new. People for 2,000 years have thought that they were in the end times. And in a sense, they were right. In fact, in a sense, everybody that thinks that is right. The Bible speaks often of us being in the final age before the age to come. But, you know, there there are excesses here. So as part of my sermon prep this week, I went and and saw if I could watch part of an episode of Doomsday Preppers, which is not what you think about when you're going through seminary in terms of sermon prep, but it was very entertaining. In episode one, season one of Doomsday Preppers, it's called Bullets, Lots of Bullets. I kid you not, that is the title of the episode. And it opens, I just couldn't help but tell you this, it opens by saying, Dennis and Danielle are typical middle-class family. Except, and then it flashes over to Dennis, I'm preparing for a solar eruption in the year 2012. Well, watching this in the year 2023 adds a whole new angle (laughs) to this show. These people are essentially predicting, whether they're religious or not, some kind of imminent event that is going to end the world. And their preparation consists of canned vegetables and water and solar panels and, yes, bullets, lots of bullets. Christians have been in the predicting business as well. The most notable prediction of the end of the world probably is Hal Lindsey's book, which is called The Late Great Planet Earth, which I will say probably gets a bad rap um, beyond what he was trying to do. But in general, he predicted that if you look at the Seven-Day War in the 1960s and the Soviet Union and the state of Israel being reestablished, the chances are very high that Jesus is coming back before the year 1984. And he didn't. But the book sold 30 million copies. So it was followed by another book called the 1980s Countdown to the Apocalypse. I was born in 1989. I'll just throw that out there. Planet Earth, 2000 AD, will mankind survive? And on and on and on and on. You might be noticing a pattern here. This is not just how Lindsay, this isn't just our brand of evangelicalism. This is the whole history of the church wondering when is God finally going to deliver on his promises? When is he going to do what he said he was going to do? When are things going to get finally get bad enough that he says, all right, let's call it quits. Let's wrap this up. Well, the question this morning is not, what do these people say about this? Maybe what your tradition or your background is. The, the question this morning is, what did Jesus say about all this? What did, what did Jesus have to say about the end of the world? And in this passage, Jesus gives us kind of two sides of this. On the one hand, this is a very important topic. And I don't make light of how Lindsay to say that what he's saying isn't important. It is important. Jesus devotes a whole block of teaching to this very topic. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew is divided up into five major blocks of teaching, starting with the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, instructing the disciples, going all the way up to this one, which is the last big block of teaching called the Olivet Discourse about this very topic. When will these things Occur. So Jesus is very clear. This is an important topic. Christians should think about this. We should talk about it. We should long for the day when God is going to bring all things full circle and He's going to send Jesus to return and He's going to make things right. We should long for that. Jesus comes and when He leaves the temple at the end of chapter 23, He pronounces a curse on the temple that the presence of God, because of their False worship and their rejection of the Messiah. The glory of God, it's like, is getting up and leaving the temple. And this this is a prophecy that is fulfilling the book of Ezekiel in chapter 11, where Ezekiel looks and he sees the temple. And God's presence rises up from the Holy of Holies, and it goes over east and it settles on this mountain to the east side of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And what you see Jesus doing here is he leaves the temple. The glory of God has returned to the temple in Jesus Christ. But he's been rejected and forsaken, and just about four days after this, he's going to be put to death on a Roman cross to the chance of his people, the Jews saying, crucify him, his blood be on us. And the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ goes to the east, and he goes up this mount called the Mount of Olives. This is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is where the Messiah is supposed to return from, according to the Jews. In fact, if you go to Israel and you go to the east side of Jerusalem and you look at the Mount of Olives, you'll be kind of surprised. You think it's this kind of serene, wonderful place with olive trees, and there, there are some of those, but mostly it's a place full of graves. It's a graveyard. And the reason for this is kind of interesting. The Messiah is supposed to come from the east, which is where the Mount of Olives is. and He's going to enter through the gate into the temple, so, so they think. And so if you are a Jew that has money and you can afford it, you get buried on the east side of the temple on the Mount of Olives because then when Jesus comes back, you're going to be the first one to see him. You're going to be the first one to rise and greet him. And so there's this expectation that Jesus, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking over at the temple, thinking about when God is going to bring all these things to pass. Now, the flip side of that, though, is Jesus gives some very clear teaching to his disciples uh, That that might correct some of our enthusiasm for the imminent end of the world. When his disciples ask him, tell us when these things are going to occur, tell us what the sign will be at the end of the age, they're really asking two questions. Like I said, when is the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to come back? And as we go through chapter 24, what we realize is this is actually two separate questions and two separate events that have a gap in the middle far longer than people probably expected there to be. And so, Jesus is teaching them about what will occur in the time period between the temple being destroyed in 70 AD and the return of Christ, 2,000 years and counting years later. One of the commentators, I think, summarizes perfectly what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. The effect of these verses, then, is not to curb enthusiasm for the Lord's return, but to warn against false claimants and an expectation of a premature return based on misconstrued signs. That has not been taken to heart in the history of the church. So what are we trying to do this morning? We're trying to hear Jesus give us that warning. Here's an enthusiasm for the end of the world, but here's a warning against premature, misconstrued signs in the text. So, I'll divide this up into two things. First of all, Jesus tells us, here's what you should be on watch for. Here's the things you should be looking for. And then, in the second part of the passage, he tells us, and here's what you should do in the meantime. So, what should we watch for? If you were going to summarize Jesus' teaching in this passage, if you go to verse 3, they ask him, when will these things be? And Jesus says, watch that no one leads you astray which is kind of an implication of there's gonna be a lot of opportunities to go astray on this, okay? Watch out, there's a lot of opportunities to get off track on this. And his basic advice to Christians is be on watch. In the period leading up to his return, be on watch. Keep your eyes wide open. Look at the text and look at the world and watch out for what's coming. The final words out of Jesus' mouth towards Jerusalem are keep watch. There are things coming that you need to pay attention to. But in verse 8, he also says all of these things that are going to happen, and we're going to go through some of these things because these are the famous things that we talk about as, is the the apocalypse upon us? He says these are not the end. In fact, this is maybe one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. He says all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. We, We sometimes have taken that like, this is it, it's coming. The effect of this is, hey, this isn't it. When you see these things, this isn't it. Things are still a ways away. These are the beginning of the birth pains. This is like, you know, we all have friends who have gone to the hospital like way too early to have the baby, and they get sent home. Sometimes we've got friends that got sent home multiple times. You know, it's time. They're like, it's not time. You go home, come back in a couple of days. Not us. We got to the hospital two hours before our baby was born. We were right on time. But there's the metaphor that Jesus is using is common to anybody who's been in this situation. There's lots of moments where you think, is this it? But it's not it. And this list that Jesus is going to give us, I'm going to split up into four things. Wars and rumors of wars, persecutions, false teaching, and the falling away or the lulling of love in believers. All these things are like the Braxton Hicks of the end times. The end is coming, but not quite yet. So Jesus lists, and I'm, I'm ordering these not in the order of the text, but in the order of prominence that we talk about things with, with, when we talk about the end times. The first one is wars and rumors of wars. Anytime there's a war, the end time is upon us, especially if it's in the Middle East. If it's in Jerusalem, the end time must be here. And Jesus says, don't be deceived. You will hear about wars. You will hear rumors of wars. You will hear about kingdoms coming against each other. That is the normal course of history in a sinful, fallen world. See, what's happening in this passage is Jesus is listing things that aren't things that are like, oh, this is the war to end all wars. What he's doing is these are the things that should whet your appetite and say, I cannot wait until Jesus returns. Right? Every single one of these four things is a description of what happens when you have sin running rampant in the world, waiting for the Messiah to come again and restore all things and make them right. War is probably the Best example of this. If you have sin in the world from the beginning of time until now, you are going to have wars. You're going to have power struggles. You're going to have land struggles. You're going to have money struggles. You're going to have power personality struggles. This is the normal course of life in a sinful, broken world. And what war should do for us is it should give us an empathy. It should give us an urge to help. But it should give us an urge to pray, Lord, we long for the day when wars cease in the world. And I hate to tell you this: the only way that's going to happen is until there is no more sin in the world. There was a journalist in 2003 named Chris Hedges, who undertook to study the history of war. He wrote a book called "Something: Things Everybody Should Know About War," and he basically surveyed 3,400 years of human history, where we have pretty reliable, widespread information about what's going on in the world. And he was like, how many of those years there wasn't a widespread war in the world? Out of 3,400 years, 268 years. That's 8% of human history without war. Jesus is not saying, hey, when you hear wars, the end is there. He says, when you hear wars, long for the day when war will cease forever because Jesus has returned. The second one is persecution. Another thing in in our world that we've been told in Scripture we should expect as believers, and, and as American believers, we've kind of been on a hiatus of this for a while, but the rest of the world, actually, the number of martyrs in the last 10 years is more than the whole first century of the church. Persecution is rampant against Christians in the world, and one of the things about persecution is it gets us ready for the day that we see Jesus return and make things right. Especially in the early church, you saw the disciples hauled into prison, and beaten, and you saw disciples put to death for proclaiming the name of Christ. In fact, one of these disciples that we know was arrested and beaten and charged to never teach about Jesus again, wrote these words towards the end of his life. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you. These trials are testing you, as though, don't, be, don't think that something strange is happening to you, but rejoice, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is to be revealed. God may have a million purposes for suffering in our lives, but one of the purposes, and and the purpose that he mentions in this passage is the suffering that we experience now makes us ready for the day when Jesus returns and we see him in his glory and we love his appearing because we've been saved from what we've experienced. One of the things that happens in suffering is it gets us ready to be with Christ who suffered more than anyone, not just physically on earth, but spiritually on the cross, having the wrath of God on our behalf put upon him. His sufferings guarantee that there will be a day where there's no more suffering. So we long for his return in persecution. Number three, false teaching. So again, Jesus' command to us is, watch out, don't be deceived, because there will be many, many opportunities. In verse 5, he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, I think Jesus is talking generally about false teaching here, and you don't have to have somebody say, I'm Jesus, you know, to be a false Messiah. All you have to have is somebody offering a rival way to do what Jesus did, that you can jump in on instead of following the way of Jesus. And if you've got wars going on in the world and persecution going on in the world and speculation about what might be happening in the world, there are so many opportunities for us to get off the train that is headed to Christ's return onto some safe landing spot that is a false hope for salvation. So I think Jesus here in the immediate context is thinking of two things that happened. In the first century, you have a group of people who are saying, "You know what, we Jesus is great and all, but actually, you need to go back to Judaism if you want to be a Christian. You need to embrace the dietary laws. You need to embrace circumcision. You need to embrace all the things that the Jews do. You have to become one of them to become a Christian. In fact, this is actually the major backdrop in the New Testament for all the letters and Gospels that you read is this question of, do you have to add anything to Jesus to be saved? Do you have to add anything to a repent and a trust in Jesus to be saved? Do you have to be religious? Do you have to clean up your act? Do you have to make kind of a pledge of good behavior before you repent and accept him? The apostles are struggling with this to teach people, you don't have to do anything to be able to come to Jesus. In fact, it's even, it's even stricter than that. You can't do anything to come to Jesus. If you add anything to Jesus, Paul says in Galatians, you've nullified the whole thing. Still to this day, 2,000 years later, the easiest off-ramp from the clear teaching of the gospel is it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus your good works. Jesus plus your ability to earn something from God. Jesus plus traditions and religious things that are imposed upon you. Jesus' grace plus a promise that never again will you do certain sins. None of that is the path of salvation. You can't do anything to put yourself right with God, which is why you need the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that particular teaching of the New Testament actually hasn't gone away. It is an easy off-ramp for us to say, Jesus, I get that, but now it's on me. The second thing that Jesus is Probably referring to is what happens right before Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. In the year 66, you have an uprising from the Jews and you have people claiming to be the Messiah. Now, these people are not claiming to be the Messiah in the same way Jesus did. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and ended up throwing off the rule of the Romans in the church hundreds of years later by dying. If you think about it, Jesus' strategy is not one that we would embrace from a worldly perspective. How do you conquer the most powerful empire in the world at the time? You let them kill you. Not a winning strategy. So these false messiahs don't take that strategy. What they do instead is God is on our side. This person is the messiah. We're going to fight the Romans and throw them off and God will be vindicated and all of our troubles will go away. And they tried that in the year 66. And the Romans came in, and they killed everybody in Jerusalem, and they burned it down, and they toppled the temple, and they exiled them across the world, and they were left thinking that must not have been the Messiah. That must not have been the Messiah. There's a seductive option that success now by worldly human means is going to bring about God's end. And I'm here to tell you that this false teaching, this kind of false Messiah is still alive and well. God didn't just decree, here's what's going to happen in the end. He's given us many of the intervening steps. He's going to do things His way, by His rules, by His outlook, and we're going to jump on His way of doing things or we're going to be perpetually disappointed. If you try to bring about the kingdom of God in a way that makes us look good or powerful or strong, it's a recipe for following a false hope in the Messiah. Our Messiah conquered by dying on a cross, forgiving his life for other people. Not by coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We should not think for a moment that our lives are going to achieve God's goals by going about it in a different way. Our, our path is still one of self-sacrifice and renunciation. There will be many false hopes. There will be many ways to say, I don't have to embrace all of what Jesus Teaches, I don't have to be a full disciple of Jesus. I can keep this part of my life over here away from him. But Jesus says, don't be deceived. The truth is right before you. Follow Jesus and him alone. And that is the way that God is going to accomplish his plan in the world. Here's the last thing. This is the one that gets gets skipped over the most, but I think it's the most powerful line of this section of of this teaching of Jesus. He says, They'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And false prophets will rise up and lead many astray. And then listen to what he says here. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. See, this is a particularly important point to Jesus because when Jesus appears to John and tells him, I want you to write these letters to the seven churches in the book that we call Revelation. In the beginning of that, he addresses the church in Ephesus. And in the church in Ephesus, which is probably the most powerful and prominent church of the New Testament outside of Jerusalem, he says this to them. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. Right? This overall is a healthy church. They're doing all the right things, but, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You got the outward things right. You're doing things doctrinally that are great. You're, you're doing things socially that are great. You're all after justice. You're doing all kinds of wonderful things, but... But hey, the the heart is starting to wane. Now This is especially powerful in Matthew because right before this, a couple of weeks ago I preached on this, right before this in chapter 22, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, how would you summarize all of this? How, How would you summarize the law? And Jesus says, here's what it comes down to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On this depends all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is essentially saying there is, if you're doing all these wonderful things, but the love in your heart is growing cold for God and for others, all those other things don't matter. The heart of all of this is that you, in your deepest part, your heart, soul, mind, and strength would be completely given over to God, and loyal to Him, and following Him, and throwing all of yourself dependent on Him. That's the core. Don't let that start to wane when you get frustrated, When you're not seeing God deliver the way you think he should. It says, when lawlessness increases, when the world around you feels like it's going crazy and things are not working out for Christians and the way that God calls you to do things is actually making you step back in the eyes of the world, when that happens, beware that your love might grow a little bit cold. Something might come in and look more attractive to you than God does. Something might come in and offer you a way of giving part of yourself to it instead of worshiping God. Here's the thing to be on your guard against if you're a Christian, is that anything would steal that full-hearted love for God away. Watch out, Jesus says, when lawlessness increases, when you feel like your back's against the wall, when you feel like a minority, when you feel like all of these things are overwhelming, look first at your own heart and make sure the love that you have for God and for other people doesn't grow cold. So this passage kind of earns its reputation, right, for a downer, end-of-the-world passage, Just like which doesn't even have the end of the world anymore. It's just bad. But Jesus turns on his disciples and he says, here's something, though, I want you to know. As you're watching out, here's what I want you to do in the meantime. All of this will happen to you, and all of this will be God's plan to bring in the end of the world, but it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached across the whole earth as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. See Jesus doesn't just say here's the normal course of life, here's what to expect, good luck everybody, I'll see you at the finish line. It's here's what you should do in the meantime. The first thing you should do is you should continue. You should persevere to the end. Christianity is a distance race, it's a long game. And secondly, as you're going, as you're persevering, you should be proclaiming the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's going to be the thing that brings in the end of all things. See, I, I think about it this way whenever I do a wedding or whenever I talk to a young couple, if they ask me for this advice or not, I typically give it to them. When you're preparing for a wedding, in today's world especially, The best thing a young couple can do is to spend more time preparing for their marriage than they do for their wedding. Some couples will spend hours and hours and hours and hours preparing for their wedding, and it'll be this grand, amazing, wonderful wedding. But then you're going to wake up the next day, and you're going to be in a marriage, and the wedding is going to be over. And it is not going to matter how wonderful that was because now it's you and that other person for the long haul, together, and you don't want to wake up surprised. You don't want to wake up with that kind of like planning hangover that people have. It's like this whole thing, you've carried the ball across the finish line, and now you're exhausted together after that. This is the beginning of the real thing. The the marriage is what the wedding is celebrating, not the reverse. So I always tell them, hey, for every moment that you spend thinking about Colors and tablecloths and flowers and invitations and all the wonderful things that go into a wedding. Spend as much time focusing on what it's like to be together in a marriage. And the advice that Jesus is giving is actually very similar. Spend more time thinking about eternity than you do about the end of the world. Spend more time fixing your gaze and your heart and learning and studying and thinking and longing for what it'll be like after the end of the world, life after Jesus returns is the thing that we're all going for. That's going to be the moment where we, our eyes close here and they open with Christ and we're going to be with him forever in eternity where everything is made new and we are whole and we are healed and it's just and wonderful and good. That's what we've got to be longing for. Jesus, his, his point here is spend your time thinking about that. You know, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in, and in fact, what we can draw from that is Jesus is spending more time thinking about eternity than he is the second coming. Later in this passage, we get the famous verse that almost nobody has borne to mind. Not anybody, even the angels or the Son, know when the second coming is going to occur. So don't worry about it. You'll know it when it happens. You're not going to miss it. Trust me. It's, it's going to be pretty spectacular. But it's going to be nothing in comparison to what happens after that. Jesus is spending his time now. He's not just reigning and interceding for us. He is preparing a place for us so that we can come and be with him for all eternity. See, this is the wonderful message of this passage is Jesus wouldn't give us a passage like this without recentering our hope on things to come. He says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, that, that can actually be kind of discouraging. If you're in a trial right now, if you're suffering right now, you're like, all I have to do is make it to the end, but all I've got to do is make it to the end of this. You know, the, the comforting thing here is that Jesus hasn't just said, if you're good enough, if you're strong enough, if you can make it long enough, then you will be saved. Because the roundabout point that we should all recognize if you spend any time reading the New Testament is what God's will for you is to endure to the end is what He has promised to do for you to the end. See, this isn't just, hey, I'll see you there if you can make it. It's, you need to make it to the end because that is my goal for you. Did you know that God's will for your life generally is that you would make it to Him in the end safely and whole and holy before Him? In fact, God has set his heart on bringing you safely into his heavenly kingdom. God has told us to do it, and he has promised to do it with us. It it, it reminds me, there's this amazing scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and if you've read the books, it's even better than in the movie, but the movie's pretty good. And they're getting up to the slopes of Mount Doom. Spoiler alert, the whole thing is they got this ring, they're trying to destroy it. And all this stuff happens, but they finally get there, and at the end, Frodo, who's carrying the ring, he's going up to the mountain and he collapses. I mean, he's hundreds of yards away from what they've been spending years trying to achieve, and he can't go on one more step. And do you remember what happens? His friend, who started out the thing as his gardener, his valet, Sam, picks him up and carries him up the slope to the edge of the mountain where they throw the ring in. It's one of those moments where you find out that as committed as Frodo has been to this quest, his friend Sam is actually more committed to this than he is. He is not only willing to carry the ring, he's willing to carry Frodo carrying the ring up to the edge to fulfill the mission. And Jesus' point here is not, if you can make it up those slopes, if you can get there on your own power, this will happen. It's even when you can't, I am more committed to this than you are. It's a great comfort for us to know that actually God is more committed to our holiness than we are. He's more committed to our longevity than we are. He's more committed to bringing us across the finish line than we are. And there's going to be moments where he says, you can't go on any longer, but we're not stopping. We're going to get there. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. But here's the last thing Jesus says. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. This is a little bit puzzling because we might expect Jesus to say something like this. If you guys will get the gospel to the end of the world, then the end will come. Or, hey guys, be sure, as you're doing all this other stuff, to spread the gospel of the kingdom to the end of the world. Neither of those things is what Jesus says here. This is an assertion. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the end of the earth. That is a promise that Jesus has made and one that he is going to make good on. See, the the thing for us is we get to participate in this, but it is not up in the air as to whether or not it's going to happen. It says in the book of Habakkuk, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And there's no if clause on that. There's no contingency, there's no back door anything on that that maybe in this case it won't. The glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. The only question is do you want to play a part in that? I got an email this week from a guy that we've been talking to at Pioneer Bible Translators and What they're doing is they have this amazing project with a lot of other missionaries and translators to say, hey, there's there's several thousand groups of people who don't know the gospel, and there's no plan to get them the gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to divide up all these groups, and we think we can finish that within our lifetimes. And I got an email from him this week that had five new people groups that he wanted to put in front of us to say, would you be part of reaching these people groups? And it's taken us a while. I mean, it's been kind of surprising. We've been at this for 2,000 years. There's still a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel. But I love the way they talk about this. This is going to happen. We're going to do this. We're going to raise the money. We're going to send the missionaries. We're going to translate the scriptures. Do you want to be a part of it? And it's not just a promise that they're making. It's a promise that God has made. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed across the whole Earth. The movement in the gospel of Matthew is amazing. You start out the gospel, and the plea is to become a disciple of Jesus, to follow him, to become like him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is this is what life looks like if you're going to follow Jesus. But then something starts to shift as you read Matthew, and all of a sudden it's not just about being a follower of Jesus or, or an imitator anymore. It's about being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, like being a fully A a fully admitted member of this kingdom. And then, towards the end of the book, it, it starts to change again. You're no longer just a citizen of the kingdom, you are an ambassador of the kingdom to the corners of the earth. You may have started as somebody who was just kind of figuring out what Jesus is all about. And then he's brought you into his family and into his kingdom. And then, after a while, you realize now you're on mission for this kingdom. You have a job to do. You, you've been entrusted with bringing what Jesus is doing all across the world to other people. And you're now a full participating worker in the kingdom of God. In fact, by the time you get to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, this great go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey. And I will be with you to the end of the age. We are now co-workers with God in his mission that the kingdom of the earth will be proclaimed across all the world. And here's the message. In the midst of all of this, Jesus says, you should be preaching this gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is a gospel of salvation. And we use the word salvation like in a spiritual kind of ethereal sense, like you can be saved, you can can get your soul saved. But in the ancient world, the word for salvation is just the word to be saved from harm, from any kind of harm. If you go and ransom a captive from a foreign army, you have saved them. If you go and there's a plague and somebody doesn't die from it, they have been saved. If there's an imminent judgment coming and sin is a terminal condition and everybody that has sin on their record is going to be punished and you don't get punished, you have been saved. The message of the kingdom is there is a way out from all of this. There is salvation available for anybody who would turn to Jesus and trust in him. They could be saved from all of this and put on mission with God. You need to go tell that message to everybody. The end is coming, but there's a way out. In fact, it's not just a way of escape. It's a way of life, eternal, abundant life that starts now. So we've come, Paul says, to the end of the ages, and we still have work to do. Jesus says, watch out. Things are going to get bad. Things are going to be kind of touch and go for a little bit, but you've got work to do. Things may get really ugly for you, but I'm coming. So persevere to the end, and you will be saved. Let's continue the work. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful promises to us that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, this morning as we consider these words of Jesus about the end of all things, we don't know when the end is coming, but we know what to do until you get here. And so, Father, fill us this morning with the trust that we need and the endurance that we need and the grace that we need to walk with you another day. Father, to take this message of the kingdom that has been transformative to us and to bring it to others who need to hear it. Father, help us as Christians who have trusted in Christ to realize that there are going to be many alternatives to Him, but only one that will give us what our souls long for. Father, satisfy us in a way that we don't want to turn to any other option. Father, by Your Spirit this morning, fill us up with the full presence of that we were made for, to see you face-to-face and to walk with you. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that at any moment we can depend on you and what you say. Father, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're celebrating communion, and the way we celebrate communion here is we'll stand in the moment and we'll walk up.